we'll go ahead and, and kick things off. Um, I'll pray uh, first, and then JC, you can you can follow, and then uh, we'll go ahead and get started. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to uh, come together this evening, uh, even virtually, but to do so uh, to come under your word. Lord, the reason we gather is to worship you through uh, studying uh, your word and, and coming to know you more through it. And, and we, we praise you for revealing yourself to us in the way that you have, particularly uh, through uh, the scriptures, which are uh, sufficient uh, for life and godliness, uh, authoritative for our lives. And we pray that we would uh, live our lives in obedience uh, to your every word, uh, just out of a reverence for you, a worship for you, and a desire to uh, live our lives uh, just fully uh, surrendered to your lordship. Lord, as we uh, study your word this evening, would um, it work in our hearts to convict us, uh, to encourage us, and uh, to shape us into Christ-likeness, so that we would be just equipped for all the good works that you have prepared uh, beforehand for us to walk in. Uh, we pray that this evening uh, would glorify Christ, uh, your son who came um, even as we are uh, celebrating this month, the advent of Jesus Christ and his uh, condescension to this world uh, to just go on a mission to save sinners, uh, to uh, give his life as a ransom. And we celebrate that and uh, just we praise you for the work that Christ has done on our behalf. So again, we're thankful for the chance to be here this evening. We pray that it would honor you. We pray this in Christ's name. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we are so thankful for who you are, that you are our chief shepherd, uh, who is holy, uh, loving, uh, so gracious and faithful, that you care for your flock. We thank you for your grace and love that you have set us apart um, to be part of your church uh, through your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that as a church, uh, you know our needs far better than we do. And you care for us, Lord, your church. Uh, you care, Lord, who are the leaders uh, in our church. And Lord, as we uh, study and reflect upon the passage about um, the high calling of elders and deacons. May you renew our minds of what church leadership should be, uh, church leadership that pleases you and not uh, influenced by the world of how, uh, uh, how worldly leadership uh, uh, is happening, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that um, may you work in our hearts and in our minds so that we would uh, be pleasing to you and uh, to truly appreciate uh, what it means to be uh, an elder and a deacon. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, before we turn it over to uh, the, the sharers this evening, um, I believe that uh, Pastor Mark 
has just a quick announcement for us. So, Mr. Mark, are you here? I am. Are we good? Yeah. I just figured out the mute button on my computer. So, um, thanks, Garrett. Lagos, as you know, is starting to wind down. I want to thank everybody for uh, making this semester really personally for Julie and I, just a huge encouragement just to um, look forward to every other Thursday night to come under the teaching of God's word has been just a huge blessing for us. Um, special thanks to the entire Lagos team, uh, the men who have put this together, uh, both uh, hosting and co-hosting these events and also the schedule and also the leaders and everybody who's participated in the exegesis each week. Um, it's been a new season for us to do this on Zoom, but it's been just an incredible blessing for me personally. And the teaching has been uh, just a huge encouragement uh, for our hearts on Thursday nights as we get a chance to gather together. Um, as many of you know, the schedule is starting to wind down. We are coming, this will be, I believe, the last um, teaching session that we'll have for this year. And then we'll have uh, another opportunity for some small group time. And then after that, of course, the uh, people who lead the small groups are gonna be gathering for a debrief. But what we've done in the past, especially during the summers when there's a break, is we provided the opportunity for a book club. And that's an opportunity uh, during a time when the administration takes a break and the discipleship group leaders take a break for anybody at the church who wants to, to participate in a book club, to gather together with people in your small group and just discuss and go through uh, some books that will be an encouragement and a source of fellowship for you. And we've typically done that over the summer, uh, but we want to do that over the winter break. And uh, it's voluntary, it's not mandatory, it's for those who have a desire or interest to continue fellowship and continue studying together. Some of you over the Christmas holidays are gonna have obligations where you're not gonna be able to keep up or participate or do that, and that's totally fine. But for those of you who still wanna to gather together with members of your small group and have an opportunity to go through uh, some materials that hopefully will be the source of encouragement and growth for you, um, and to keep you together and walking with Christ until we regather for Lagos in January, I'd encourage you to do this. We'll have some information coming out for you shortly and through your small group leaders for the coming week so that if you have an interest in doing this, we can help facilitate matching and making some small groups for you for the book club. I know the summer was a huge encouragement for you. For this coming uh, uh, book club over the Christmas holidays. There are two small books that we're going to go through. We try and do a biography and also maybe a, a more uh, instructive doctrinal book. So the book that we're, that the elders are going through with the small group leaders is Mark Dever's book called Discipling. That's the book that we've gone through. It's part of the nine mark series. It's short, it's brief, but, um, I think Mark Dever does a really outstanding job on sharing with us what biblical discipling is all about, as opposed to a lot of what passes for discipling. And so I know that this will be a, a huge encouragement for anybody who goes through that. The other book that we'll be going through 
uh, is a book that I snagged from my mother. Um, it's Ian Murray's biography on Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was a single woman who was a missionary in India who uh, set up or God used her to set up a ministry that rescued many of the orphans who were given over to pagan temples for prostitution and for idol worship and to be basically enslaved and used um, really for all manner of darkness. And she was a sound gospel missionary who believed in the inspiration of scripture and held tightly to that. And Ian Murray's biography of her, uh, for me, I couldn't put it down after uh, my mom passed it on to me. And as I read through it and went through it, though it is brief, and Ian Murray does a brief summary of her ministry and her career, it certainly reflects a lot of the themes of discipleship. Not only was she discipled, by uh, a few very godly men uh, in the local church. She also was an incredible discipler as well. So uh, we will post those books for you so that you can get them. Even if you're not able to participate in book club, I would encourage you to pick them up and read them over the Christmas holidays. They'll be the source of encouragement and help to you. And then uh, please stay tuned, we'll get you more information about how you can participate in some of those groups. Thanks, Garrett. Awesome. Thanks, Pastor Mark. Um, so we'll keep a lookout for more info to come on Book Club. So just keep an eye out either on the, the members group or through your uh, discipleship group leader. And we'll be passing along the info for you shortly. Um, before we get to the sharing time, we'd like to just read the passage for us. So if you have your, your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there to 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 through 13 uh, is the, the passage for the, this evening. And I'll go ahead and read it for us. And then I'll, I'll turn it over to Edward uh, to just go ahead and, and share uh, just one thing that you learned uh, from your time and then Heather after that. So uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for someone does not know how to manage. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Edward, I'll go ahead and, and turn it over to you. 
Thanks, Garrett. Uh, can you guys hear me? Awesome. Uh, so during our exegesis, um, I guess a few things that we saw that were um, really encouraging. It's uh, we'll start with the first verse. It's like uh, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Um, we analyze the word aspire and desires and aspire uh, where we talked about that was like an external motive um, that person has. And the, the desire part was the one that really uh, encouraged me and really challenged me was because a desire is an internal passion, but that internal passion is a passion that's planted by God and not by man. So that was really uh, awesome to see in that. Um, and then when we went through uh, the qualification for elders, deacons, and deaconesses, um, we saw that the requirement for a church leader uh, is character focus and not on their talent, not how well they can execute the X's and O's, crossing T's, dotting I's, things like that. And um, the biggest differentiator for an elder from a deacon, deaconess is the ability to teach. And, uh, and then we concluded that um, uh, our biggest takeaway was like, Christ cares about the holiness of the leaders because he himself is holy. He truly cares for his flock. And for all of us, um, we were truly humbled by these requirements that uh, the leaders have to go through. And for ourselves, like to take heart, to grow as a Christian, whether or not we're called uh, for church leadership. Thanks, Ed. Heather. Hello. Um, so yeah, in my uh, small group, something that stood out for me was uh, from verse two of uh, chapter three, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Um, the husband of, of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospital, able to teach. So something that really stood out was when I learned about the qualifications of the elders and how the elder has to be above reproach um, and how there's an emphasis of character like what Ed has just um, just mentioned. And uh, also there's the consistency with what God says in the scripture and how the elders live it out. And uh, yeah, and I was just encouraged that I was able to see that example in our church um, just through our pastors and through our um, our elders and our uh, deacons that I'm able to see these qualifications and just be, um, notice have them uh, just be encouraged by that um, through just following Christ and how we could have a good display to follow too. Awesome. Thanks for sharing Edward and Heather. With that, we will turn it over to Peter who will walk us through the passage. Hello, everyone. Great to see all of your faces. Just so you know, I do peruse through every face to see you guys. And some of you uh, are doing some funny and strange things. And that's why I love it. Um, so please, if you can do video, keep doing it, uh, at least for my own entertainment. I really appreciate it, guys. Um, but I'm sure it's an encouragement to all of you guys as well. I'm going to say a, a really quick prayer to really ask God to help me tonight and uh, bow your heads with me and I'll open us up in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, I'm going to be going through 
a passage that uh, is familiar to our church, yet it's so beneficial to go through again um, about uh, the, the calling of elders and deacons uh, in the church. And so I pray the Holy Spirit would have mercy on me tonight. I pray that the Holy Spirit will have mercy on those who are listening. Um, for some of us, could be fighting uh, weariness. Perhaps it was a long day for some. And uh, I just pray, Lord, that the flesh wouldn't win um, tonight, that, uh, that we could be filled with the Spirit and be excited for your word and that we can keep growing uh, to be more Christ-like and, uh, and grow in character, uh, just as the scriptures call us to. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's see. I'm going to see if I can. All right. I think I'm sharing my screen. JC, can you see my screen? Okay. I saw a thumb up. Thank you. All right. So we got a my slides here and uh we're going to continue on first timothy three how do i is that it does that work for everyone oh good perfect all right um so first timothy three uh we've um you know, the, we preach through this. And so uh, just as a recap, you, we are sort of a blessed with seeing, uh, kind of listening in on a personal letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And Timothy is a, a younger, uh, up and coming, um, sort of a, he's kind of done a kind of an assistant role to, to the apostle Paul up till now. And uh, Apostle Paul just uh, got out of prison or house arrest, if you want to be more technically accurate. And he is now traveling to different churches, continuing his ministry. And uh, he urges Timothy to stay in Ephesus to do kind of finish off what they started, uh, which is to keep building up leaders there and strengthen the church. And you get the sense that the church was really uh, not going in the right direction, um, which is probably an understatement. But, um, but Timothy is there to right the ship. And there's also a sense that Paul is um, kind of recognizing that there's a shift going on because he knows his time's not going to be very long. And so we get this wonderful benefit of this letter. First Timothy, and there's also a second letter, Second Timothy, which is when Paul gets arrested again. He writes to Timothy, asking Timothy to come and visit him before it's too late. So it's an incredible blessing to the church to see that um, we have a prescription from the Lord on what leaders should look like in the church. And we also are reminded that. Um, you know, in the book of Acts, chapter one, if you if you remember, Judas Iscariot, he committed suicide because because he betrayed the Lord and felt so guilty about it. Uh, they had to replace him. And we just have to sort of recognize that back then they they casted lots, which is very interesting. So I just wanted I just want you to just think about that for a second, that they weren't looking for character traits. 
to replace Judas Iscariot. They were asking the Lord to choose him between two people, right? And they said it was Matthias and another person. And uh, Lord, you know who you want to choose. They cast a lot, and the lot fell on Matthias. And if you notice something interesting in 1 Timothy 3, you don't get any sense of that type of mechanisms going to help you in choosing a leader. And it's important to point that out because that's part of the transition that Paul is making. Um, Paul, he was familiar with miracles. He healed people. Um, he casted out demons. Um, he even had the angel of the Lord disciple him, says in Galatians chapter one. And so Paul is very familiar with miracles, and yet he doesn't, he doesn't say this is something that God's going to automatically choose for you. And it doesn't mean God's not providentially involved with the raising of leaders in the church. But it's very important to recognize that the character traits that he's talking about has to be observable. Once in a while, you know, you run into guys, I run into people, that insist that they are more righteous than what they appear to be. And they insist that they're more honest than they appear to be. And they insist that they're more holy and godly than they appear to be. And sometimes they can get defensive when you try to correct them in something, saying, no, 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 I'm not as bad as it looks. But this is really about partially what's observable. That's what character is about. Now, it's not to say we're looking for people flaunting their righteousness. But this is our, we're talking about a pattern of life that's consistent with what they profess in Christ. And a pattern of life that's consistent with the gospel. So for some of you men, you know, in the sermon that I did on 1 Timothy uh, 3, um, 1 through 7, about the qualification of elders, um, it was really more about going through every one of those words um, and kind of, kind of just giving you an idea what those words mean and what that life would look like. And, you know, a couple of guys have even come to, came to me and said, what, what, what do I do if I wanted to improve in certain areas? And how do I actually, you know, prepare if I do want to become an elder one day? And um, it's not something many guys are necessarily excited about, but there are some guys I know, even on this call, that are probably wondering the same thing. And it's just really a day-by-day growing in the word, praying, and just doing what you're supposed to be doing. And that's, that's a very broad statement, but it doesn't happen overnight. You know, before you came to the Lord, you were probably struggling with all types of sins, you know, um, private and public. And even if you repent, it takes time for you to build that pattern in your life, that track record. And what we're talking about here, who are qualified to be leaders, is they've built that track record. It's a consistency where they're not wondering anymore. Um, if, is, is this sin dominating my life like it did before? They, they will know that answer, right? They, they've seen the success of the spirit in their life. They've seen the power of the word in their life. And, um, and they're going to be, have that character in a way that can be observed. Because 
Just like also in Titus chapter one, Paul says, appoint these men. So Titus, he actually commands Titus to look for these people. Here, even though it's not a command, it's implied that Timothy should be looking for these people. But for him to choose these people, they also have to be um, commended also by the congregation, right? So, so these are, we're talking about leaders that it has character, that we're not talking about casting lots. We're not talking about some secret voice from God. We're not talking about some supernatural event that's going to tell us who these men are. It's going to be based on their life. And it's very important to point that out. Um, tonight, I'm going to try to do something different. Uh, the title is Don't Be Like That. Be Like This. It's, it's just... It re really, it's uh, we're going to go through some worthy and not so worthy examples of men in the Bible. Um, it's something that I was, I wish that I had time to do in my sermon that I did, but you just don't have time for something like this because it takes up a lot. So, and we may not be able to get through every single word because there are a lot, but, um, you know, the, the idea here is I, I just wanted to bring up some biblical characters in the Bible that show the failure of this character trait, and some who have actually shown a, a worthy example. Because I could have pulled church history, I could have given you examples of men in my life, but the Bible is just filled with all these examples. And I'm quite certain that some of you have not read certain parts of the Old Testament in a while. And I love these kind of surveys because it's gonna get us back into some of those passages and hopefully that'll make you more interested in going back to the Old Testament. By the way, I'm in, you know, uh, JC just finished Old Testament survey, and uh, I'm doing Old Testament survey. So, um, you know, I'm enjoying some of these passages as we speak, because that's part of my homework. But um, hopefully you guys will get excited. So let's jump into this. So it's really simple. Um, we're going to talk about a one of the, the character traits, like above reproach. Okay. And um, I'm sure some of you in your minds can think of all these types of examples that I probably won't mention because of time. Um, and that's okay. If there's a lot of examples, they're probably, you know, they're probably more than one, but I'm just gonna highlight one and we're just gonna talk through it. So above reproach, let's just talk about really what that means again. Reproach, it really is the overarching characteristic of all the characteristics. There's 14 total. This first one is kind of the, the train engine that drags all the other character traits because above reproach really means uh, a life of integrity. It means that with all your interactions with people over a, a, a good period of time, that you're not just snowballing concerns all around you. You know, people getting more and more concerned about you about something. And um, above reproach means that someone, they're not leaving a conversation with you acting like, oh, I, I got something to correct this person, or I got something that I can grab a hold on to in your life. And, and so this is the overarching character trait of all leaders is that it shouldn't be someone that you're concerned about having a leadership title in the church. They shouldn't have something in their life that, you know, and, you know, as much as there's probably a lot of examples of this in the Bible, the failure example that I thought of 
was really uh, someone who was also a good leader in many ways, but also in this particular case, a failure. What you do when no one's watching, when it's only between you and God, is how you build up this particular character trait. Because you can't put on the ruse, you know, without at some point stumbling in front of people or exposing yourself. And I don't need to go very deep with this story because I think it's a familiar story, but you guys understand that um, David, it says right there in the passage in 1 Kings chapter 11, that during the season when kings go with their army to battle, David was in his palace all by himself. And it was here where he was caught into the temptation to, um, with adultery, uh, Bathsheba, who was married at the time. And uh, her, her husband Uriah was a person in the army and, um, and David took advantage of that. And eventually after the, the sin, he even murdered her husband just so that he wouldn't have to confess it. This, this is a public sin, right? This was something that the prophet Nathan came to him and addressed and he had to repent from the whole nation. But it was also by many perspectives of scholars would view this moment is the moment where Israel started spiraling down. And, and so this is not a great example of above approach. This is a failure of above approach. And you can also see that although ultimately David was still covered by the forgiveness of the Messiah, um, he uh, paid an enormous consequence upon that sin. But what's the success? Just think about a moment right there. What would you say? And then let's see if it matches up with mine. But again, just know that there's many examples you could have said. I'm going to say Joseph, Potiphar's wife, right? Kind of the sort of the uh, antithetical version of David's, David's situation. Here you got um, a leader's wife uh, hitting on Joseph. And he all alone just between him and her and God. And she said, he says, how can I sin be forgotten? So what a wonderful example of integrity, right? And so we start off our, our uh, the teaching today with above reproach. We got David as don't be like that. Joseph, be like this. That's something you can imitate, guys. All right, let's go to husband of one wife. Again, um, Lots of examples you could choose in the Old Testament about failures in this regard, but I think there's one winner here, guys, and I think you guys have already might have guessed. It's Solomon, right? Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. He took it to the max, um, and it says in 1 Kings 11.3, if you guys have your Bibles, we can turn there real quick. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. When was the last time you guys have read 1 Kings? says right here, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. It's not a big surprise, right? I mean, you have that many wives. I can't imagine that. A lot of those were political alliances, but still, I mean, what was Solomon thinking? Uh, he, he sinned grievously in this regard and even his foreign wives as well, which was against the law. So what about success, guys? Who, if, I mean, that's the that's sort of the prototypical failure in this regard, husband and one wife. Um, success, 
You guys think of a few examples? Who, you, who would you say? I right, just give you a few seconds to think about it. I'm going to say Hosea. Now, Hosea probably had every reason to divorce his wife, right? Hosea is the minor prophet where God tells him to go and find a woman that's going to go uh, really act like a prostitute. And because that's how Israel's been treating me. And Hosea basically uh, goes ahead, obeys the Lord's commands. And, you know, we can go there. We can jump over the first uh, Hosea real quick here. Just a couple of verses here that really depicts Hosea 1, verses 2 to 3. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Amazing. Amazing, just as a picture of a judgment and failure of keeping covenant of Israel. If you jump over to Hosea chapter 3, let's go there real quick. For some of you have your Bibles, who you should all have your Bibles. Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and the Lord said to me, okay, so this is after she left him. And this is after she uh, is now um, basically committing adultery. Hosea 3, the Lord continues and says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And so Hosea says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to other man. So will I also be with you. Amazing. So I just have to say that um, marriage can be hard, right? But, you know, godliness is about making a choice about who you love. It really is. And this is, Hosea is playing a role here that's really depicting a picture of God's love for his people. Because after all the unfaithfulness of Israel, God will still keep his promise ultimately, and he will restore Israel one day. And that's the whole, that's the whole purpose of Hosea. So um, Solomon, don't be like that. Hosea, be like this, right? Okay, let's go to the next one. Ah, temperate silver mine. So this is where it's going to get a little harder for you guys. Some... See, we started out a little easier, right? I mean, you know, okay, husband and wife, Solomon, easy, da-da-da-da. But what about this, temperate and sober-minded? What are you guys going to say about that one? Give you a few seconds. Think about that one. Okay, I see some of you giggling, talking. Very good, very good. All right. Here I'm going to reveal, for failure, none other than Saul in the Old Testament. Anyone say Saul in the Old Testament? Um, for, all right, my man, Pastor Mark, first Samuel chapter 14, <laughs> first Samuel chapter 14, verses 24 to 46, first Samuel chapter 14. Let's go there real quick. And this is a wonderful picture of someone who is not temperate 
and sober-minded and someone who can take things of their own opinions too far. And we see a picture here. Now you got, before I start here, I know all of us view Saul as a failure completely as a king, but it wasn't like that in the beginning. In fact, in the beginning, Saul was actually walking right with the Lord. He was doing what he was supposed to do. He just, he finished off terribly is what happened. And his trend on following the Lord just got worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, David, you know, actually uh, was kind of very, very consistent, except he had one big failure that was very dominant. He had a, another one later where he did the census. But, but besides that, he was fairly consistent. But Saul was just a downward trend kind of uh, really, really flew off the rails. But here at 1 Samuel 14, we start seeing a picture of who really, who Saul really is. Um, and it says right here, uh, oh, start, starting with verse 24, yep. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. And it said right here that now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to the mouth. Now these guys are weary, they're tired. Um, they are carrying weapons and armors. They're away from home. And Saul just has this rash vow. But here's where it gets really, really, uh, a, just a lack of un, a lack of reasonableness coming from Saul. And it says right here, but Jonathan, verse 27, if you could jump down to verse 27, had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to the mouth. So basically his own son broke the rule. He took some honey. And then right here in verse 28, then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with the note saying, cursed be the man who eats food of the say. And Jonathan said in verse 29, my father has troubled the land. What a terrible vow this is, in other words. Um, See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little honey? Meaning that this is good for you. Why is my dad saying not to eat anything? And so for now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. And he goes on. And basically, Saul realizes someone broke the rule. And he says right here, come here in verse 38, all you leaders of the people and know and see how this sin has arisen today. And basically, he tries to find out who it was and finds that it was, it was Jonathan in verse 42 by casting lots. And then verse 43, Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you, what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Meaning he was going to kill his son over this. But then it says right here at the end that people... Um, the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. I mean, they, they somehow persuaded Saul not to do this foolish act. So what a wonderful example of what not to be like with things like promises, vows. I mean, it is a sin to break a vow, but to sin to keep a vow 
what help is that? This is not someone who is, um, has the character uh, qualification for an elder. Um, if you go to success, what would you guys say? This is a hard one, right? I have to think about this one. Um, a biblical example for me that I came up with is, let's see if you guys get this one. How about Paul? Any of you guys said Paul? This passage stuck out to me, uh, you know, when I read it a while back ago, and I'm still amazed just how um, just, uh, he was just uh, so all there, even in the toughest trial when he was captured and he was being interrogated. If you go to Acts chapter 23, right here, verse one, this is when he's basically uh, being interrogated uh, by, the, by the Jewish leaders. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. In verse 3, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And then five, Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of the people. Even right then there, where he was about to get beaten um, unjustly, by the way, for being, uh, for was still focused on honoring Christ. And even though that they were going to be um, be unfair and unjust and all that, he was still all together there. And that's a great example of temperateness. How how are you in times of trial when the pressure is on? You know, do you let it get to you? You know, that's a great example of what Paul did um, in regards to a good example of temperateness. So let's move on. All right, what about this one, guys? Self controlled. Self-controlled, self-controlled. So someone who has a uh, good awareness of basically what's within their control, their own body, their speech, right? Um, their decisions, they have a good awareness of this and they take responsibility for their actions and they understand that it's within their control to control these things. That's self-control, right? And so you got self-controlled. Um, in fact, there's a proverb that says a man who... Uh, basically loses his temper is like a city with his walls torn down. That's the proverb. So, so basically lack of self-control is like someone who has no defense against their emotions or their uh, just, or, or what someone might say to, um, to offend them, right? These kind of things. So who failed at this guys? I'm just trying to give you some time to think about it. You guys have a good one. All right. I'm going to say, Esau, and you guys know the story. Esau sold his birthright because he was what? I can't even hear you guys. But if, if you're in a room, you would say hungry, right? Because he was hungry. And in Genesis chapter 25, verses 29, 34, 
Esau just does just that. He sold his birthright um, for something that uh, Jacob, would, like a, uh, some stew that he made for him. And so Esau basically rather had the, the food than his birthright. And then later in Hebrews, it says that Esau regretted it and he sought repentance, but the Lord did not allow him to get his birthright back. Now that's sad, isn't it? Um, many times when you lose self-control, lose your temper or, um, or any type of thing where it leads you to sin, um, those, you, the consequence could be severe at times and there's nothing you can do to change that. You're going to have to live with the consequences. And Esau had to live with that consequence for the rest of his, rest of all eternity, actually. Um, what about success, guys? Self-controlled? Anyone? What do you think? You guys, a couple couple ideas here. I see some people chatting about it. I am going to say, I'm going to cheat here. I'm going to go to Jesus. <laughs> and I'm going to, and, and I am cheating. I'm going to Jesus. I, I, I just want to admit that. But just hear me out here because Jesus in the wilderness is not any normal temptation because we always think of it as oh he was tempted like us no this was not a temptation of just him just being hungry and getting some food the temptation with jesus in the wilderness primarily was that he was the son of god who can do miracles and the temptation was to do a miracle outside of the father that was the temptation something that wasn't mandated by the father remember jesus said what the father speaks i speak what the father does i do Satan's plan was to try to get Jesus to do a miracle without the approval of the Father. And the fact that he had the power to do so, that is a temptation that none of us, okay, we could actually relate to. And I just wanted to mention that because of that, I just had to mention the self-control that Jesus displayed in, those, in the temptation of the wilderness wasn't just three little temptations, but it was basically reveal yourself as the son of God prior to the right time that the father gave you. It was really just go do what you want. You are the, the king. You're the rightful Messiah. And Jesus showed, I think, um, in what, I, what, what appears to be a, a remarkable and um, just uh, a supernatural self-control. So I just wanted to mention that. All right, and I'm sure some of you thought of a few that were really good examples too, and, uh, and that is fine as well. All right, respectable, guys. Respectable. Acting in a dignified manner, you know, um, not coming, you know, uh, making mockery of with the worship service, you know, by wearing flip-flops um, or, you know, when you have shoes to wear or, you know, it's, uh, I'm sure people wear flip-flops to church. I, I was just trying to think of an example where uh, you're just dressing down primarily because more of laziness um, rather than wanting to show reverence to the Lord and um, just preparing your heart, um, but respectable. You know, uh, elders need to be respectable. You know, leaders in the church need respectable. Deacons should be respectable. A lot of these character traits with elders and deacons, they do overlap. And although respectable is not one that's mentioned in, as a deacon, it is also something that is assumed. So failure, who's a, who's a failure and respectable? That might be a hard one for you guys a little bit, but I'm gonna say, Nabal the fool in 1 Samuel 25. 
Nabal the fool. So in 1 Samuel 25, okay, um, some of you may remember this. David and his army um, are essentially uh, running from Saul, and they're, they found just a kind of a, a, a pasture uh, where Nabal was a shepherd. And so there was, uh, you know, there was actually a place possibly that they can get some hospitality, but Nabal being drunk and selfish and arrogant uh, turned David away. And I'm just paraphrasing 1 Samuel 25, but he really did it in a way that offended David. And so when David heard what happened, David was going to kill Nabal and his whole family. Now, David, we think is just a nice guy. You know, he's like, hey, he's Mr. Nice Guy. Um, but you got to remember, David's a warrior. I mean, he, he is a guy that went off and fought Goliath by himself. So he is a guy who also boasts that he used to fight lions to protect shepherds. So David is not a, uh, he's not a guy who's passive. He, he definitely, uh, he has, you know, a, uh, an action mentality about things. And so he was going to definitely um, show Nabal who's boss. And uh, then who's the success? No other than his wife, right? I thought would be really appropriate. Abigail, Nabal's wife, quickly positions herself and Nabal to make things right with David. And if you read the story, we're not going to do that because of time. Um, she quickly uh, puts together uh, bread and, and meats and food and, you know, essentially uh, takes responsibility even for her foolish husband's actions. And what a respectable thing to do. And, and I think, I think it, this is just, you got two just character traits side by side in this story of someone who's just unrespectable. You can't respect this guy. And then you have Abigail, who is nothing but dignified and classy. And at the same time, um, she is even willing to sacrifice herself to save Nabal, the foolish husband. Um, and so that's a great picture of what's respectable. The, the lesson there for you guys is, um, you know, are you the type of person that is always just seeking the swiftest justice as possible for everything? I mean, wouldn't it have been right for Abigail to let Nabal die and just save herself? You know, but it, but it, but her character just wouldn't allow her to do that. And so we leaders care care more about themselves in these situations. And Abigail here, although a woman, uh, showed exemplary leadership in a time when it was a crisis. So, um, so there you go, uh, respectable. We got Nabal and Abigail. Hospitable, hospitable. What do you guys think about hospitable, guys? Any ideas on this one? I am going to point you to a book in the Bible that probably many of you haven't even read, or it's been a very long time before you read, because both answers are in the book of 3 John, because that is a book about being hospitable towards missionaries. And the failure there is we have a name in the letter, 3 John, of a guy named Diotrephes, and the letter is so short. Why don't we jump over to 3 John real quick? So 3 John is actually the shortest letter slash book, whatever you want to call it, in the Bible um, it, by word count. So it, you know, it's so small that it probably sticks to the pages of your Bible. So when you're like flipping through, 
uh, you don't even remember it's even there. You just, it's, you see first John, all of a sudden, whoop, you see first Peter, right? Or Revelation, right? So it's like, um, so it's, it's definitely a book in the Bible that is uh, forgotten. But, but let me just summarize this wonderful book. And because both characters are actually in this letter, you have a character, Diotrephes, that John is going to rebuke because it says right here uh, in verse 9, I have written something to, to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Okay, so he's lack of submission, lack of submissiveness. Verse 10, so if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. So he gossips and blasphemes um, and not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He, he keeps people out. So these, there's these traveling missionaries, people who went out for the sake of the name, it says in the letter. And it says right here that, um, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome them and also stop those who want to and puts them out of the church. So he was even church disciplining people who wanted to welcome these traveling missionaries. And so um, it says right here in verse 11, uh, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Just like what my teaching title is, you know, don't be like that, right? But be like this. Don't be evil, but imitate what's good. And so, um, and so right here in the beginning of the letter, we have a, a person by the name of Gaius who the letter was written to. And it says right here, um, verse three, for I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. And I have no greater joy than to hear that the children are walking in the truth. And it says right here, verse five, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, the traveling missionaries, strange brothers, strangers as they are, even though you don't know them, who testify to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, verse seven, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. And so Gaius was providing hospitality. He was welcoming these people outside the church. And so hospitality is an important trait for church leaders. And I just wanna say that it's not an optional trait. Hospitality is someone who is willing to open up what the Lord has given to them, all their resources, whether it be missionaries or for your own people in the congregation. Um, this is a character trait. This letter here is primarily about hospitality, showing just how important it is to our Lord. Um, if you guys remember uh, our, you know, um, early, uh, early Saint Church, uh, well, it, Old Testament saints, um, like Abraham, um, he was known to show in hospitality. Uh, when the angels were going to demolish Sodom and Gomorrah, um, Abraham's nephew Lot were the only ones who showed them hospitality. And so you see this concept of hospitality linked to uh, representing God. And if Israel did not show hospitality to someone as a foreigner walking into someone's town, it was considered a sin. So, so guys, hospitality is not a secondary or tertiary character trait for a church leader. If you have everything, but you can't just, you can't seem to feel comfortable opening up your home to people you don't know, just people who profess their believers, and you have a hard time doing that, then you are probably not at least ready to be a church leader. So this is an important qualification for an elder. So you got Diotrephes and Gaius. All right, able to teach. And this one, I'm going to make it easy on you guys. Um, th this one's actually many answers. So 
failure to able to teach is every false teacher mentioned in the Bible. All right. <laughs> all right. So we're just going to make this easy because of time. But some of the ones that were mentioned in the Bible that I'll just highlight is uh, in First Timothy, in the book of First Timothy, you got Hymenaeus, you got Alexander, who was going around, you know, saying things like the resurrection already happened. Right. And so Paul basically said, I kicked them out so that Satan can do his thing with them. So hopefully that they can come back to the Lord and repent. And then I'm going to say this, the first John 2.19 guy, there was some leader in the, it, with one of the churches that was linked with the apostle John, and John was around Ephesus, but it could, you know, he could be talking about a different church near him, or he could have been talking about the church of Ephesus. Uh, but first John 2.19, they, they left us because they were never of us, right? So there was some church split that happened in the letter of 1 John that John is referring to. Whoever that guy is, is also a big failure on able to teach. So every false teacher in the Bible you can think of, let's go ahead and put it under that category. And success, I mean, go ahead and pick whoever you want. Moses, he taught the statutes and laws to Israel. Ezra, he explained the Bible as Israel was standing. Jesus I mean, people were astonished with his teaching. He is the son of God. And obviously the, the, um, the most, uh, you know, amazing and important teacher to our faith and the apostles, you know, all the, you know, the ones that we know of, at least in scripture, Peter, he would stand up and do these amazing sermons in the book of Acts. Um, and, you know, once he was filled with the Holy Spirit and once he had a full conviction of who Christ was, there was no stopping Peter. And of course, Paul himself when he was teaching it says in the book of acts when he just basically shared the gospel that he would just go into a synagogue and just explain what who jesus was that's all he did he wasn't he wasn't being fancy about it but people would just be astonished and so being a good teacher is not about being fancy we're not talking about fancy teachers we're not talking about people who are using worldly wisdom of course we're using we're talking about people who are submissive to the word and if you are submissive to the truth, you have a potential to be an able teacher, right? As long as you're submissive to the truth and you can communicate that truth. So, um, so, but you do need to be able to teach. If you have a fear of speaking in front of people, it's not the right role for you, right? Um, not a drunkard. This is kind of self-explanatory, but let's talk about this a bit. Um, you definitely don't want someone to be a drunkard. I don't think anyone would, you know, uh, would argue that. Uh, some failures in the Bible, there are a couple actually, but uh, let's talk about Noah. I mean, Noah getting drunk and then he exposed himself. Uh, what a, I mean, this is a failure, right? This is, you know, getting drunk, you know, after the flood, he was like the only, him and his family were the only ones alive. Uh, we can have some compassion on Noah. He probably felt some depression, <laughs> right? After the world got judged, all right? So, but here he is, there's a part in scripture where we kind of shake our head going like, I don't understand why this is in the Bible. Well, it's in there because it really happened, right? That's why, that's why it's in the Bible. Bible is just basically uh, recording uh, what actually happened. It's not being prescriptive. Um, this is obviously descriptive. And so the failure of uh, Noah's failure, a very public one in the scripture and the success, um, any Nazarite who stayed faithful to his or her vow. And uh, in the Old Testament, a, a man or a woman could have a Nazarite vow. Um, and essentially, you can't cut your hair, and you weren't supposed to ever drink any alcohol. Um, and the, probably the most famous one is Samson, right, that we know. Of. 
he was a Nazarite. He, his power was in his hair. Delilah tricked him, cut his hair. He lost his strength. And then it says in the passage, very ominously, that his hair started growing back again. And at the very end, he was able to get his strength back. So, so the Nazarite vow is a very mysterious vow, um, but it's one in the scriptures with some very specific uh, requirements. But uh, I'm pretty sure that none of those guys got drunk. So um, that means you can do it. You know, if you have a problem with alcohol, uh, if you're playing around with alcohol, um, yes, I will admit it's not a sin to drink alcohol, but you are playing with fire, right? We got to, you got to be very, very careful and wise if you're going to be playing with fire and, you know, you might get burned. So be careful with that. Um, not violent, but gentle. Not violent, but gentle. Now, gentle does not mean effeminate. Okay, I just wanted to say that. Uh, we're not talking about a man who's, who, who talks like Michael Jackson, you know, hey, like, you know, we're not talking like that type of gentle, okay? We're talking about someone who doesn't go around and kill people. We're talking about someone who doesn't go around punching people in the face because they want to win an argument. Literally, uh, the antithesis to gentle here is don't be violent because it, you know, if you look at the Old Testament, all the heroes were what? Many of them were violent. I mean, the judges were violent. David was a warrior. Um, you had Moses also, a, he led conquests. Joshua led conquests and destroyed, uh, I mean, destroyed uh, towns even. And sometimes even wiped off the whole, uh, even gen did genocide with certain bloodlines. So you get a sense that you, from a Jewish context, they had a sense that, you know, the strong leaders were fighters. That's, the, that's why these passages are in the Bible. I mean, it's, it's for us as well, right? Because you want to make sure you're not trying to be that guy who's going around, um, you know, being violent to, to get your own way. But you have to understand the Old Testament comes from a perspective where a lot of these guys that uh, delivered Israel were very violent. And this is not the type of leader we're looking for. You're not looking for a military leader in the church. That's the point. You're not talking about a guy who can win someone in a boxing ring. Um, so not violent. Failure, you guys have an idea? I'm gonna go and... <laughs> Samson's rage against the Philistines. So we just mentioned him, but here we are mentioning him again. Um, in Judges 15, one through six, he comes home after battling the Philistines and he goes, ha, ah, I'm gonna come home to my wife. And then he finds out his father gave his wife away. Oh, I thought you didn't even like her. We just gave her to your, one of your friends. And you can just sort of imagine Samson just getting angry and breaking things. And he goes, ah, and then he goes out and just starts killing Philistines. And it says literally in the passage, like the Philistines were even confused by his rage. Like, Samson, Sam, what did we do to you? Why are you bothering us? And he goes, well, it's because, you know, I lost my wife. That's basically what he is the reason it says in scripture. So it's very, uh, Samson had a way of handling problems with his rage. And we'll call that a failure. But success. I would say is Daniel and his friends. Daniel and his friends. Think about what Daniel had to go through to stay uh, um, just um, kind of a, a diplomat, um, diplomatic with the pagan nation. They were captive to a pagan nation as Jewish boys, right? Um, yet they never plotted against the government. They never rebelled. They never got angry. They never maligned them. They committed to prayer 
And they were willing to suffer for trusting in God. Now, that's the type of church leader that people will respect and follow, right? Um, guys that are constantly just, you know, getting in arguments and trying to, you know, get their way and even sometimes bullying people. Um, in, our, in our society, we don't kill people when we're angry. We just get, we just bully people, right? So, I mean, that's not someone that's going to garner the respect of the congregation, right? This is not above reproach. And so the... The example that Daniel and his friends, um, even being thrown into a furnace, of course, and, the, and of course, remember the, the lion's den, all of this is such an amazing example to us um, of trust in God and, um, and, and really not being violent, even though you're in tough situations. And this is related with not violent, uh, but let's see, failure for not quarrelsome. This could be challenging for you guys. Give you a few seconds to think about this one. Any, anyone in the Bible that's quarrelsome, guys? How about Korah's rebellion? Remember them in Numbers chapter 16? When was the last time you guys have read the book of Numbers? Um, if you guys do quiet times in the book of Numbers, I'm, I commend you. It's not a lot of people's favorite book. But if you do read it, it actually has incredible wisdom principles um, and things you can learn from. And one of them is Korah's rebellion, Numbers 16. And Korah basically uh, gathered up some other tribes of Israel and a bunch of them stood before Moses and said, why do you get to be in charge? Who made you in charge? We can be just as good as you. What made you be a leader to Israel? And, um, and so Korah basically started questioning Moses, asking all these questions and essentially trying to start an argument. And then you got the success is in the same chapter is Moses himself. Moses himself. The amazing thing about this chapter is that Korah tries to start the argument with Moses, and most people would get defensive. Most people would try to push these guys out or punish them. But Moses basically says, okay, okay, you want me out? Let's let the Lord choose. So tomorrow morning, stand before the tent, and let's see what God says. That's all Moses does. That's almost that. Now, do you guys know? Remember what happens? I'm going to show you a picture of what happens. Right, the earth opens up, swallows those guys up, and basically God made his choice. That's Moses. Which is a this is a really important lesson because one of the reasons why you get quarrelsome, right? You have a temptation to be quarrelsome to win an argument is primarily usually to defend some opinion you have or defend some something that you, you know, or defend yourself, really. Sometimes you're defending your own position in the church. You, you, can, you can feel threatened. And I think one of the most important traits of a church leader is that you really just have to be convinced that you're called to be there. You know, you have to be convinced that the Lord put you there. And Moses did that. Moses is convinced 100% that he was God's choice. He didn't have to feel like he had to defend himself. So don't ever get sucked in in a needless argument. You're not quarrelsome, right? Not a lover of money. Failure, let's all say it together. We know the, we know the, we know the name. It's on the tip of our tongue. It's Judas Iscariot, right? This is an easy one. He basically traded in a relationship with the physical living Jesus Christ for, um, pieces of silver, right? This is really sad. 
But I want to say the success here that many of you probably would not have mentioned. I'm going to say Matthew, the tax collector, be, primarily because that's probably not the first one you would have said. But because um, you guys may, may have said Zacchaeus or some of these other ones, um, there was a few that came in my mind. But Matthew stood out to me because primarily he was a tax collector. Think about that. He had money. He went around basically, uh, you know, um, extorting money from, from, from his fellow brothers of Israel uh, as a tax collector. He had the money. He could have lived the life and he gave it all up to follow Jesus. And he, besides the book of Matthew, never says anything in any of the Gospels. There's no quotes coming from Matthew. Uh, we only know about him primarily just the part where Jesus says, follow me, the, his conversion story. And after that, um, we don't hear anything about Matthew. So Matthew is this quiet apostle, and yet he gave up his money because he loved Christ. All right. Manage household well. Be good parents, right? So church leaders have to know how to love their family um, in the truth, with the gospel, um, teach the word to them, and you got to teach the gospel to them. And so who was the failure of this? There are actually a number of failures <laughs> as parents in the Bible. But I'm going to say Eli's failure to discipline his sons. First Samuel, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. Um, Eli's sons were temple workers. They were priests, but they were sleeping around, you know, with prostitutes and other women. And, and all Eli says is, sons, you shouldn't be doing that. Stop it. That's all the Bible says. And then later on, um, in chapter 3, God sends a prophecy to Samuel and says, Eli's house is empty. It's, it's, I'm tired of this. It's been, God was so patient with Eli and his sons and finally um, says they're going to die. And in chapter four, they die, all of them. And no more. Now, who's the success of good parents? This is probably a harder one. Who's, who, who's, who gives us a worthy example to follow in the Bible as good parents? And you can think about this for a second. I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to say Abraham. You know, it's so it's subtle, I admit this. It's not like it's not very explicit, but you have to wonder what does a son do when his father tries to sacrifice him? You know, it's like I had to think about that. You kind of realize, hey, Isaac had some reason to be resentful towards Abraham. Yet, after you know, Abraham sacrificed Isaac, and yet Isaac still grew up trusting and loving Abraham. And I think that is a picture because Abraham was just a loving and very deliberate father in Isaac's, in Isaac's life. Um, now, what's the principle we can learn there? Uh, some of you are, have young children. Um, some of you are waiting for a baby. Some of you are uh, not even married. And some of you have many children, probably more than you were expecting to have, right? Um, but, you know, really the picture of a good, someone with good character who uh, has the qualification to be a leader in the church, um, they have to understand uh, how to love their family. Um, because their family are the people that God has given them to be the closest in life and their wife to be the closest person in their life. 
Um, if those relationships are deteriorating, who cares how hard you're serving on Sunday morning? Who cares if you're doing all your homework, right? Um, that the elders are giving you to do? Who cares if you are meeting up with 10 people to disciple them if your family life is deteriorating? Um, you wouldn't be above reproach. It'd be a shame to the church. And so, um, so yeah, manage household well. Uh, half the first half of the battle is first uh, placing the right priorities to actually want to love your family, and then um, actually carrying out that in, in your life. Not a recent convert. You guys got this one. This is a hard one, actually. I was like, I was like, is there even an example for this one? But I think there is. Uh, I'll say failure here, guys, is Alexander the coppersmith. Yes, I know it's a little obscure, but let me explain, okay? Acts chapter 19 is when Alexander is first mentioned. And there is, okay, and I'll admit, there is some uh, probabilities here where we're not 100% sure if this Alexander is the one that uh, Paul mentions in 2 Timothy. The Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Okay, but um, but Alexander uh, was probably someone that was initially close to Paul, that Paul was trying to disciple, and he was young in his faith, and Alexander definitely was not ready. Uh, he didn't have that maturity, that character uh, over a period of time, and I think um, that really broke Paul's heart. Um, that really broke Paul's heart. So Alexander was part of the riots in Ephesus in Acts 19. He was in the Ephesus church. He's also mentioned in 1 Timothy 1 um, as one of the guys that got disciplined. And then later on, Paul mentions Alexander again and that he did him much harm. And you kind of get the feeling that this was just, this was deeper than a guy that just abandoned Paul. Um, you get the feeling that Alexander really broke his heart. And so, um, so you get the sense that, so not a recent convert, really giving someone time to prove themselves is so important. And you know who did that the, the best that I can think of? It was Paul. Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He had some of the best trainings uh, as a Pharisee could have about the Old Testament and the Torah. And yet, even after being converted um, by Christ on the road to Damascus, he still spent years preparing himself and really relearning everything. So trust me that very few of anyone you'll ever meet Will, will be converted knowing as much as Paul did. And yet even Paul still took his time before jumping into a ministry as an apostle. And you can read it in Galatians 1. He spends three years in Arabia um, that he says being discipled by the angel of the Lord, uh, which some, could, some say that it was Jesus himself that discipled him. Um, and then he spent even 14 years before he actually went down to Jerusalem and uh, you know discussing you know, what he was teaching with others to the apostles. And so he really took his time. He really took his time. And so that's the whole point. Um, when someone is really hurrying to be a leader, uh, probably probably a red flag there. So not a recent convert, guys. Um, someone you, you want to make sure that have shown plenty of um, track record. And I think we're the last one thought of well by outsiders. And we're just going to go back to the iotrophies. Um, it says in 3 John that everyone came back with a bad report. Everyone just came back with a bad report of diotrophies. He just had the, the reputation of being a hater, you know, and 
Um, and that's not cool. And obviously Diotrephes was a disqualified leader from the Apostle John's eyes. But who was the success of this, guys? All right, if you guys get this one, 100 bonus points, 100 bonus points. Just kidding, there's no points in this. Um, success, whoops, here we go, David. Um, yeah, David had some, definitely some bad moments in his life, but there were certain parts of his life that's very exemplary. And even when the Philistines, uh, when David was running away from Saul, his enemies, the Philistines. Now remember, Goliath was representing the Philistines. So when David killed Goliath, he essentially was fighting against the Philistines. And so David was very well known amongst the Philistine circles, and he was hated. Um, but they hated him, and yet they still respected him. And I think that's amazing. I mean, when you have such character, and you can have, uh, you can be so respectable, and um, that even when your enemies will help you when you need it, I think that is a remarkable character. Um, how do you treat those that don't like you? You know, David had no problem running to the Philistines when he needed help, which is probably humbling to him too. And so you can read all about that in 1 Samuel 27. All right, guys. All right, well, final exhortation. Bad examples, don't be like that. Good examples, be like this. And uh, very simple, statements right um but you know um it is something that uh we all need the, the biblical examples are there for us uh that the holy spirit can use that we can learn from and um and i just want to i'll close this time um just by um encouraging especially the men you know because you know the leadership in the church does start with the men that these character traits although impossible from a human standpoint is possible with the Lord. Um, and when a man uh, is not exhibiting these character traits, uh, it's not necessarily that we're worried that they're not qualified to be a leader. They're, they're really not walking right with the Lord. You know, they're not walking right with the Lord. These are character traits that every Christian really should be aspiring to. And, um, and I think that's the point. Leaders should be examples of Christians that are really are, are worthy to be um, exemplary and those you can, examples you can follow. So, all right, guys. So thanks for bearing with me. I knew I went a little bit long, but I thought that was a, was a different angle at this passage that could maybe uh, uh, been helpful to you guys in a different way. I'm going to close us in a, a prayer and I'm going to hand it over to, I think, Garrett. Is that you? I'm coming up to Garrett. Okay. I'm going to pray, guys. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for allowing me the privilege to just go through so many wonderful passages uh, throughout the scriptures um, and that so many lessons we can learn from and uh, that we can also uh, be warned from to avoid um, and to grow in character in Christ. And, and really, Lord, no one deserves to be uh, representing you or or your church, or standing before your people, we understand that it's all grace uh, from the gospel. Uh, we, this is not a, uh, a performance reward for those who are doing really great or anything like that. This is really a re reality of the gospel that is observable to your people in the church, um, that we wanna make sure that the leaders will not bring, bring, bring shame 
to the name of Christ and to your church. And so we want to make sure that these leaders can have a long-standing um, role in the church to, to keep the church uh, going in the right direction according to scripture um, and to protect the church from false teachings uh, and also to lovingly, wisely counsel your people um, and so that other uh, men could be uh, ra uh, raised up as future leaders in the church. And so that is what we pray for. Uh, that the spirit will raise up leaders in our church. Uh, we pray that the elders, uh, the elder board can grow and the deacons can, can grow as well. And that we will even have sisters in Christ that could uh, be just exemplary servants in the church. And we pray, Lord Father, that this is your doing. We get all the glory for it. And we look forward to that day when Christ returns and we can all stand uh, before you, um, just humbled by your mercy and grace, um, ready to worship you for all eternity. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. Thank you, Peter. Uh, it was definitely just a blessing to uh, just walk through just so many passages from, from God's word and be able to see how uh, rich it is when we can take a passage like 1 Timothy 3 and then, you know, see that lived out in so many places and in so many uh, people's lives uh, throughout the scriptures. So thanks for doing that and definitely appreciate it. Uh, and hopefully that sharpened everyone's uh, Bible skills a little bit and freshened up our Old Testament. And if not, gave you a little bit of a, a taste and maybe a desire to want to dig in there more. Uh, we'll just go ahead and, and close with a couple announcements. Um, do want to welcome anyone who's just joining us. Maybe this is your first time someone invited you out to Lagos. If you want to, you know, get to know our church better, if you want to get connected or plugged in um, or just learn more information, uh, please reach out to, to Teddy uh, you or Naomi you. Um, they'll be happy to um, help you and, and get you more information about Lighthouse and about Lagos, our, our discipleship and Bible study ministry uh, that we're meeting in now. Um, so go ahead and reach out to them if, you, if that pertains to you. Uh, we also do have a worship service coming up on Sunday. Um, please RSVP to that in the form that JC has distributed, um, if you haven't already. Um, and just a heads up, we, we are uh, limiting the indoor uh, the indoor service to, to 50 people. Uh, I think the past couple weeks, it's been okay. We um, about kind of evened out, um, you know, by people just volunteering to, to go outside. But um, yeah, want to keep that in mind. So as you fill out the form, please go ahead and, and mark yourself down for that. Um, and looking forward to seeing you all, all there on Sunday. Our next Lagos is... Um, going to be just a, a time where you can meet together in your discipleship groups for sharing and for prayer uh, next week. If you don't have uh, a discipleship group, you can reach out to uh, JC, Teddy, or Edwin. Um, and yeah, use that time to uh, pray for one another, to share about what you're reading and what you're learning and how God's word is shaping you and, and be in prayer for our church. Um, and then also, since that's going to be the last 
meeting for uh, at least this calendar year. Uh, just keep it, as Pastor Mark mentioned earlier, keep an eye out for uh, the announcements, further announcements on book club. And with that, I will go ahead and close this. I believe that's all the announcements. So I will close this in one last word of prayer for this evening. Lord, you are good to us to uh, allow us this time together uh, to study your word from 1 Timothy 3. We're thankful for our elder Peter, for his diligence and study and, and walking us through uh, just the various examples, um, uh, even uh, warnings um, and other examples to follow in the lives of men and women in the scriptures. And we pray that uh, we would indeed be those who uh, live up to the uh, qualifications um, and character qualities found in, in 1 Timothy 3, that we would aspire to uh, be men and, and women of uh, godly character, uh, that we would exhibit the fruit of the Spirit uh, as you work in our lives. Uh, we pray that you would raise up uh, godly men in our church to be elders and deacons, and that you would continue to grow uh, the leadership of this church so that we would uh, yeah, follow your lead and uh, glorify Christ in, in every aspect of our church. Uh, it's his name that we desire to be honored. And um, we pray that you continue to shepherd each and every one of us through your word. And we're thankful again for this evening and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.